here we go. A little bit of context for this week, right? Uh, Palm Sunday is when Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's, he enters as, um, as a king to be, and within a few days, the same people that, that were screaming and crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah, praising him, were calling for him to be crucified. On Friday, he went to the garden with his disciples after having celebrated the Passover meal together. And he was betrayed by one of his very closest inner circle. He was taken then, and he was confronted. He never, ever spoke to deny himself or to try to justify himself. He stood silent before his persecutors. He was then flogged and beaten Actually, before that, he was, he was, they tried to humiliate him by, by putting a crown of thorns on his head and jamming those thorns down into his scalp and by dressing him up in the, in the royal colored robes of, of a king in purple. They spat upon him. They pulled his, hair, or his beard right out of his face. He was flogged and scorched. And historians and theologians say that as horrible as the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen the Mel Gibson movie, as hard to look at as that is, that it's not possible that he could be portrayed as badly beaten as he was. They say that it's very probable that Jesus may not have been recognizable as a human being after the flogging. Then they threw this heavy beam cross thing on his back that he would have to drag all the way up the hill to where he was to be crucified. It it was so overwhelmed in his body that they had to enlist a person to help him to get the cross to the top of the hill. They put him on the cross. They stretched him out and and drove spikes through his wrists, through those big nerves in the wrist, and through his feet. And he hung there until he was dead. He was mocked. He was made fun of. You know, for the purposes of our modesty, when we see a picture, a painting, or a depiction of the cross, he's got a little diaper-looking deal on. He didn't have a little diaper-looking deal on. He was hung naked before his mother, his mockers, and all of the world to see him. He was taken down off the cross. He was taken into a tomb and prepared for burial. And then he rose from the dead. Now, the glory of the resurrection is that it's the proof that he was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. Right? If Jesus had just had the tiniest little sin in his life, he'd still be in that tomb. There'd be no resurrection. There would be no ascension to the right hand of the Father. So that's the context that we come to today. Understanding that it was all done for a purpose. We need to understand the purpose. We need to come to grips with the purpose. We need to understand God's plan for how he wanted to deal with the purpose or the problem that's that's in this whole situation and then choose whether or not we humble ourselves before him and submit to that process. So that's the gist of today's message. It's not just a resurrection message. It's a crucifixion and a resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection message. It's really more about death than it is about life. And I'll explain to you why that is in just a minute. I need to define for you two, two terms before we go further. The first is saved and the second is lost. If you don't have a good understanding of what those terms are, then the, the message will be confusing to you. 
And, and maybe for those of us, well, I'll get to that in a second. First is saved. A saved person is a person that has met the conditions of God for eternal relationship with him. That's what it means to be saved. If you hear the word saved, it means a person that's saved is going to heaven. That God has created a way through his son that they may be eternally in relationship with him in the heaven in the new Jerusalem. Lost, easy to define, is the person that hasn't agreed to those terms, hasn't humbled themselves before God. And, and probably, probably there are three categories of people here in this room today, probably in every church across the world today. Or next Sunday if it's Ukraine, right, Heather? There are people that are saved. There are people that are lost. And there are people that think they're saved, but they're not. So if you're saved, I'd like you to consider this message to some extent as though you're not. If you're lost and you know it, I'd like you to consider this message from that very context. And, and if you're not sure, or maybe you think you're okay and you're not, I want you to have an open mind and an open heart to hear the way God presents salvation to the world. Okay. I want to talk for just a couple minutes about, as if I was speaking to the world, because the world is full of objections to the gospel. They're full of objections to God and his process. And it's because outside of Christ Jesus, we idolize ourselves as God. So, so I, I want to deal with some of those things um, from the perspective of context. People would say, why would a loving God commit people to eternal torment in hell? If God is love, and he is, his very nature is love, and it is, then how in the world could love ever have a place like hell And even worse, how could it take a person that it loves, God himself loves a person, and commit them to eternal damnation? How in the world could I follow a God who could do that, who could have that kind of a perspective on things? But that's the wrong question. The right question is this. If you understand God in in, in some ways that I'm going to show you in just a minute, and you understand ourselves in the ways that are true, The question stops being, how could God be so evil, but how could God be so good? Because what he did was not commit people to hell. Hell was never created for men. Hell was created for fallen angels and became the place where fallen man would go as well if they chose to hate God. So whether we understand it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we can conceive of it or not, Our understanding of love is not correct if we think that God can't love and send somebody to hell. Really, a person sends themselves to hell. The greater question is, how could a God who's so perfect be, as his son was, spat upon, uh, mocked, uh, disobeyed, all these kinds of things, and in in the face of absolute and total rebellion still want to make a way, a very costly way, because there's no cheap and easy way back into relationship with God. Why would he bother to do that when he is able to speak creation? He could push the reset button on, burn the whole thing up, and start over again. But he didn't. Why? Because he's good. 
and because he understands love because his nature is love. If our understanding of love doesn't agree with his understanding of love, then we're wrong, and we need to move our understanding to his understanding. So the big picture is this. We, mankind, are God's creation. We didn't create God. He created us. God, the creator, defined the design for his creation and our relationship with him. Does the clay tell the potter how to shape it? No, the potter has a plan for whatever that thing is going to be, and he molds it as he sees fit because he's the potter. Or, or does the canvas, if you're going to paint a picture, do you wait for the canvas to tell you? Does the artist say, well, where should the colors go and where should the lines be? No. The canvas waits for the creator, the artist, to put the colors where the artist decides them to be. We have to humble ourselves before God. Otherwise, we will never understand how to find our way back to him. Third thing is to understand that we are eternal beings. It's really important to see yourself as an eternal being. Now this, this is an earth, well, no, this is a shirt. This is an earthly tent. It's already decaying. It, it, it's, it's becoming less and less and less. When I pass from this temporal life into eternal life, now, now this one I can't say is perfect doctrine. I'll tell you what I think. So you can decide whether you agree with it or not. The first half is, if I'm found in Christ Jesus, if I have humbled myself before God's way of salvation, then he will, he will clothe me in a new tent, an eternal tent that will never, ever, ever decay. It won't feel pain. It will be perfect in every way. But if I don't submit myself humbly to his way of salvation, somehow I got to have some kind of eternal tent to be tormented in. If I can't feel the pain of the lake of fire, then I'm not in that situation. So I think everybody gets some sort of eternal dwelling for wherever they're going to spend eternity, whether that be ultimately in the lake of fire or in God's glory in heaven with him. We severed relationship with God. He didn't do it with us. God in his goodness and his mercy made a way for us to return to eternal relationship with him. Next thing is, God is a just God. We have to understand that God will not deny justice. As a matter of fact, the songs we sang today were so perfect for today. Great job. All you guys, great job. Great job. When we say that we're forgiven in Christ Jesus, it's not a wrong statement, but we need to understand what really happened. The, the punishment for sin, the justice associated with our sin wasn't forgiven. The penalty had to be paid because God is a just God. He won't, he won't deny his own truth. What happened in our forgiveness is it was actually transferred to Jesus. So all of the penalty of all the wrath of God against sin was paid, just wasn't paid by us, if in fact we chose Jesus as Lord and Savior. It was transmitted to him. So the argument that says, well, you know, how could a loving God, even in his love, every person that commits themselves through their sin and through their denial of Christ Jesus to an eternity in hell, God loves them. 
He never stopped loving him. I don't think it's possible for him not to love his creation. But his love doesn't bring their salvation. His love brings the opportunity for their salvation, but they have to choose their destiny. The next thing to consider is the holiness of God. We have to understand, because we tend to see things through natural eyes. As a matter of fact, I don't even know. I'm not sure that this is true, but I'm not sure that we could even conceive in this context of the holiness of God, the perfect righteousness of God. See, in the garden, if you're familiar with the story of creation, God created Adam, formed him from the dust of the earth, breathed life into him through his nostrils. From Adam, he created Eve from one of his rib bones. And and now there's this man and this woman, and they're in this garden. And for them to have eternal relationship with God was just one rule. Don't eat from the of the fruit of that one tree. What about the rest of this stuff, God? Knock yourself out. Enjoy it. They sinned by denying God. They broke relationship for all of mankind. They stepped away from holiness and righteousness. So it's important that we understand that God's context for relationship is absolute righteousness and perfect holiness. And, and maybe that's synonymous with each other. Um, I found a quote from a guy named John Piper, a really, really excellent biblical thinker. He said this, when we say is God, that God is holy, we mean that along with the immeasurableness of his greatness, his character is unimpeachable. He cannot be charged with any wrong. He has an infinite love for what is infinitely valuable and an infinite hate for what opposes the infinitely valuable. His delight in praiseworthy things is unbounded and his abhorrence for what is blameworthy is perfect. And then he quotes uh, Habakkuk 1.13, which says, your eyes, speaking of God himself, your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrong. God is the embodiment, the embodiment of holiness. There is no impurity in God. He is absolutely perfect. And he is never to be defiled by imperfection. It's important that you understand that. And, and, and it's at that high level because we tend to think like on a class curve, right? You talk to somebody, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Well, sure. How do you know? Well, I never committed murder. You know, I'm better than most people. There is no class curve as it relates to relationship with the Lord. There's either perfect holiness and righteousness or there's not. If, if you're in the not category and everybody born into the not category, you will not spend eternity with God. And for us to cheapen his holiness by thinking that somehow if I'm in the 51% that's better than the 49%, that God is going to tolerate my wickedness and my ugliness and my filthiness, we deceive ourselves. When you think of sin, I want you to think of it in the context of a stain. Think of it as a stain on a garment. Think of whatever the worst thing is, maybe grape juice or pomegranate juice or you know, some kind of really bad stain on a perfectly white and pure garment. When, when I'm talking about sin, I want you to think of it today in terms of a stain on a garment, okay? 
I've talked about this quite a bit in the last few months, and it's interesting how God is like filling in a, a picture for me, and I'm seeing things not like, wow, I never understood that, but wow, I see it in its fullness so much more now. Think about this. If, if salvation came from perfect living and we had sinned once, could we then find our way back into God's graces? If I could, after understanding that I had sinned and separated myself from God, and I was able to live a perfect and sinless life from this point forward, would I be acceptable to God? Don't answer the question. I'll answer it for you. The answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is the stain of sin is on me. The fact that I didn't commit another one doesn't change the fact that I committed one or more or a million before this time. My garment is stained. I can't get the stain out. And the last thing I want you to think about in the setup here is that relationship with God is based on covenant. It's, it's a, if you want to think of it as a contract, it's an okay way to think of it. Think about God's relationship with the very first human beings, with, with our fathers and mother, Adam and Eve. It was, it was based on covenant. They could have relationship with God if they kept covenant. Covenant for them was don't eat of the fruit of this one particular tree in the garden. They broke covenant. What happened when they broke covenant? They were put out of the garden, and a, 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 an angel with a big fiery sword, if I remember correctly, was put at the, at the entrance of the garden so that they couldn't get back in. And even that was love. Even though they were outside the garden, they had to work the soil and sweat and everything that they would have never had to do before. The reason God wouldn't let them back in the garden is they might eat from the tree of life and never be able to get back into relationship with him again. Think about Israel. When God uh, chooses a man, Abraham, and his seed through Isaac and Jacob as his covenant people, and he starts to explain to them the context of the covenant. And you have to understand, we hear all this stuff about Israel and God you know, punishing them and, and having to help, you know, discipline them, all these different things. Before they came into covenant, God gathered them all together and he explained the covenant. And he gave Israel the opportunity to, to agree to the covenant or not to agree to the covenant. And they said, yes, Lord, we will. He said to them, I place before you life and death, blessing and curse, Life and blessing if you obey the covenant. Death and curse if you don't. They broke covenant with God. And then finally, the covenant that we have offered to us today is a covenant that's in Christ Jesus. It has terms and conditions, just like it did with Adam and Eve, just like it did with Israel. Now, the new covenant, the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus is no different. It comes with conditions. Okay. Quick summary. Mankind is God's creation. He being God is the definer of our being. God is holy and perfectly righteous. Relationship with him requires that we be also. God is just and cannot allow sin or rebellion not to be dealt with. And relationship with him is based in covenant, his established parameters. If you want to create a covenant with God yourself, you can make up the rules. And you can present them to him. And he could say yes or he could say no. My guess is that you'd be better to just agree to the covenant relationship that he's offered to us. Okay. Now, back to today. Death and resurrection. There is no gospel without the resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 14 
reads this way. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. If you doubt the actual resurrection of an actually dead Christ, then your faith is in vain. Because if he wasn't raised, we can't be raised. I said it before and I'll say it again. I believe that if you doubted Jesus as the Christ, if you doubted his perfect, sinless life, if you doubted him as perfect, spotless, no blemish, Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sin of mankind, the fact that he was resurrected proves that that was true. If he had sinned, he wouldn't have been resurrected. And, and if you say, well, wait a minute, what about Lazarus, or what about Eutychus, or what about you know, the kid that um, Elijah or Elisha laid down on top of? They were all dead and came to life too. What happened for them eventually? Every one of them. They died. They didn't get ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. They died a death. And we'll talk about dying death. Matter of fact, some of those guys actually mess with a little bit that I'm going to tell you, but they, but they don't make it untrue. Okay. Um, it's, it's important for us to understand that there were four necessary components to Jesus' role in the gospel of salvation. The first, his perfect, sinless life. Literally, death to himself. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died to himself. The second is the manner of his death. Everything that happened to him, and we can only really see the physical things. I believe that the spiritual torment that he had to withstand for our sin had to be greater than. Because if Jesus would have never come, and every human being committed sin, and they would be eternally tormented without end, how could, as horrible as it was, just the physical things that Jesus endured be the payment for all that? So I think that there are spiritual torments that Jesus had to with, uh, withstand on behalf of us. So the second thing is how he died was necessary. The full wrath of God against sin was poured on him. The third thing is the resurrection provides confidence in our own risen opportunity from the dead. And then the fourth is his ascension and that for us, as it was with him, is eternal. It's no different for us. There will be no resurrection for us unless we first die to ourselves. And this is the gist of what I want to talk to you today. The gospel is beautiful, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful, and it's just fraught with love. But if we don't understand that for Jesus there is no resurrection unless he submits himself to death first, if he doesn't come from his throne, take on mortal flesh, never ceasing to be God, but taking on the flesh of man, and allow himself, right? What did he say when Pontius Pilate or whoever it was said, don't you understand that I can kill you or I can set you free? Jesus says, no, you have no control over me. Only what the Father in heaven says. And I could call a legion of angels down right now and put an end to this whole thing. Jesus chose to die. He can't be resurrected if he doesn't die. If he's not resurrected, then there is no resurrection, and our faith and our hope is in vain. So the first thing that we have to understand is we can't be resurrected unless we die. We have to choose to die. Part of the process of even being saved is saying, I choose to 
die. Let me read you some scriptures. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. Key word in here is if. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Romans 3, 6, or excuse me, 6, 3 through 7. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, the baptism isn't because you got wet in the water. The getting wet in the water is you telling the world that I'm dead. You're not dying in the baptism. The baptism is the confirmation of you telling the world I'm a dead guy. Been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For, we, for if we have become united, if again, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. The effects of sin, the power of sin, the punishment for sin. Who has that? The dead person has that. Every person, whether they fall into the category of the saved or they fall into the category of the lost, will die twice. Let me show you. Jesus died to himself. How do I know Jesus died to himself? Because in the garden, when he was confronted with, you know what, it's not a thought anymore, it's not a prophecy, it's not something I know is going to happen, it's something that's happening. Jesus prayed. He said, Father God, let this cup of your wrath pass, pass me. And give me a different cup to drink from. I don't want to do that. My will is not to do what I know is coming. But your will be done and not mine. In that very moment, Jesus demonstrated that he was absolutely dead to himself. He had to die to his will. His will was not to have his guts hanging out from a flogging. His will was not to have his beard pulled out of his face, to have all the meat ripped off his back, and to have spikes driven through his hands and legs, trying to hump himself up just to breathe until finally he couldn't anymore and he expired. But he submitted his will. He died to himself unto the Father. The second death for Jesus was the cross. And what did the song say today that we sang? It was doctrinally right. He defeated death. Death is defeated. He was ascended to the right hand of the Father, done once and for all, never have to be done again. Jesus had to die twice. Once to himself, second time on the cross, never again. Okay, let's look then at um, a saved person. The one that, that, that participates in the first resurrection. Resurrection with Jesus, like the scripture said. First, just like Jesus, we die to ourselves. Second, we die in this natural, um, temporal, earthly tent that God has given us. And then what happens? We're resurrected. Never, never, ever to die again. Third person is the lost. The lost person doesn't ever have to die to themselves. They've chosen not to. They've chosen to deny the covenant opportunity that God has given them. So their first death is in this natural temporal tent. Their second death is then the one that comes when they're ultimately cast into the lake of fire. 
Let me show you two scriptures. Revelation 26, 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's the person who's agreed to God's covenant terms, salvation in Christ Jesus. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation again, chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. So the first scripture speaks to the one who was saved. They participated in Christ's resurrection. That second death for the others isn't their death. Their first was to themselves. Their second was this natural death. Excuse me. Their eternity is with God. The person who never chooses Jesus, who never submits themselves humbly to God in a saving way, they're going to die in the natural, and then they're going to die the second death when they're tossed eternally into the lake of fire. The sad thing is, it's a death unto their relationship with God, but it's not a death unto not being submitted to the penalty of their sin, because that will never end. Here's a, uh, one of Jesus' parables. Matthew twenty two eleven through 13. It speaks to this stain. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the man was at the wedding feast. The wedding feast is for the redeemed, those that are going to spend eternity, the bride of Christ with God, with their Lord and their Savior, Jesus. And somehow this guy snuck in, but he wasn't properly dressed. His issue was unrighteousness. Relationship with God requires perfect righteousness and perfect holiness as he is perfect and righteous and perfect and holy. And this guy's garments were unholy. They were stained. They still had the sin stain on them. Acceptable wedding clothes have no stain. When we're dressed, as as we are if we're saved, we're clothed in righteousness. But it's not our own righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Salvation, resurrection, requires death for the very reason of the stain of sin. This is why the Bible speaks of the saved in in these ways. Born again, new creatures in Christ. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the, the kingdom of heaven. By necessity, being born again requires that you die. Otherwise, you don't need born again. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, the stain of sin is not removed by good behavior. There is no detergent that washes away the stain of sin. It can't be washed away. It can't be cleaned. Matter of fact, when we talk about the blood of Jesus washing away our stains, it's really not a very excellent perspective on on how Jesus saves us. That garment that's stained with sin has to be thrown away. It has to be replaced. It can't be made clean. The righteousness that makes us 
qualified to participate in the banquet is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us on behalf of his perfect life and the conditions that God makes for mankind to have relationship with him. I can't be righteous. I can't be good enough to get the stain out of my garment. I need a new garment. That's why Pastor Jim at the Freedom Center talks about this analogy or this picture of a person who's you know, floundering around in the middle of a, an ocean or a lake and, and they don't need a swimming lesson because they can't swim that far. They need a savior. They need somebody to pull them out of the water. Same true with us. We can't be righteous even if we're righteous from now on because we're stained. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now hear this part. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Discussing... This is an evangelist kind of a conversation now. Discussing with anybody... Their particular sin is a waste of time. And it's a distraction from what's important. Because why? They're already dead. You tell a thief that because if he's a thief, he's not going to go to heaven. And if he stops stealing stuff, he can go to heaven. He could believe you. And he might even quit stealing things. And then he's going to die and stand before God. And he's going to get the thumbs down. He's going to say, wait a minute. I never stole another thing once I found out. Didn't take the stain away. The issue is not any particular sin. Before I came to Jesus, sincerely, guess what? I'm dead. I'm going to hell. There's no hope for me except Jesus. I can't stop sinning and be okay. Neither can the person that the Christian with their good heart wants to tell them, oh, if you'll just repent. Repentance is a fruit. It's a necessary condition. But it's not the issue. The issue is you're stained. And you need a savior. Not a swimming lesson. Our confession can't be to be good from now on or even to trust or believe in Christ. It must be to die. Because if we don't die, we can't be resurrected. If we don't die, the old garment isn't done away with and the stain put over there so that we can put on a new and a righteous garment. To be saved from our sin requires that we meet all the conditions of the covenant relationship God has, pres- God has prescribed for his creation to be redeemed unto him. These are the conditions. First, We must recognize that we've sinned and that our sin has broken our relationship with God. If somehow we come into this conversation thinking that we're already righteous, the rest doesn't matter because we're deceived. No one calls on a savior that doesn't need to be saved. If I don't know I'm drowning, I'm not sure exactly how I would do that, but if I don't know I'm drowning, I'm not asking for a lifeguard. First thing is you must come to grips with the fact that you broke relationship with God. Second thing is belief or faith in the fact that Jesus and his righteousness are completely sufficient payment for our sin debt to God. 
There is no Jesus plus my good behavior. There is no Jesus plus circumcision, as Paul talked to in the Galatian church. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's his perfection that makes us right before God, imputed to us based upon our faith in him and our confession to him as Lord. And that's the third thing. Finally, repentance, the sincere confession of the lordship over, or excuse me, of Jesus over our lives, essentially to die to ourselves. See, that's where we die, is in repentance. That's where we die in the Romans 10, 8 through 10 scriptures that say, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that's where we die, is to ourselves. See, we must confess Jesus as the Lord of our lives, that our will is dead as it relates to his will. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in the execution of his lordship over our lives. You know what I mean by that? Right? We, we can sin and still be saved if the position of our heart is that Jesus is Lord and we made a mistake. God has made a way for that to be the case because he says in 1 John that if any of us sin and confess our sin, sincerely confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the issue isn't your perfection in being submitted to Jesus as Lord, but the sincerity of your heart. And if your heart is sincere, then you will be excellent. That's what progressive sanctification defines, that we are going from glory unto glory unto glory, being made into the likeness of Jesus. All the conditions must be met. We recognize that we need him. By faith, we recognize that he's absolutely the full payment for our sin. And then finally, that we would die to ourselves in repentance with Jesus as our Lord. Apostle Paul's testimony, a couple of places, is really great. In 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul says this, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. The first death, part of this death, is to, is to decide to be dead. The second part is to actually be dead, right? Paul dies daily because this flesh thing, this thing that wants to oppose God and his rule over our lives, keeps wanting to be resurrected off that cross, and it needs to keep being put on that cross. It is a never-ending battle to stay dead. Paul dies daily. The second is Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Paul's perspective on his own life. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's an excellent perspective for all of us to have. I hope it's, it's becoming clear. Maybe, you know, for you it's always been clear. Some of you, maybe some of you not. You know, some of us, I think, are saved. Some of us 
aren't saved and some of us are, are deceived into thinking we're saved when we're not. I hope that you understand that the only way to be resurrected into life is that we choose to die first. And, and typically, in, in a meeting like this, after a presentation of the gospel like this, what, what would be done next would be a salvation call. Now you've heard the truth, and I want you to take a minute and decide if you want to walk with Jesus. But I'm going to read you a, a course of scripture today, and it will explain to you, or I'll explain to you from it, why I won't do that today. Why Wednesday is very important, and the following Wednesday is very important. And... and I, I got my salvation, part of my process of being saved was one of those raise my hand things. I am not jamming up anybody that does that. I'm not saying that people don't get saved when they do that. But what I am deathly, deathly convicted by is the concern for the person that thought they got saved by that when they hadn't really made the sincere commitment. And that's the reason why I won't do it. Okay? All right. Let me read you this scripture. This is Jesus describing to the crowds what it means to be his disciple. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, I hate to say this with my kids in the room, does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What Jesus is saying in these pictures that he's drawing is that you must count the cost. Now, ultimately, it's a stupid decision. There is no cost that's worth eternity away from God. But you're making this decision in the here and the now. And and what Jesus is saying to us isn't that, that it's his will that you hate your children or that your children hate you or that a husband hates his wife. What he's saying is that your love devotion to him has to be so complete that your love devotion to the dearest things in your life before you died looks like hate. He's not telling you to take everything you own and give it to your pastor to be his disciple. What he's telling you is to not consider anything that you have your own. Remember what Paul said? I consider it all rubbish. It's all junk. It's all garbage. He's saying that the cost to follow him is everything. You must Die. That's the consideration you make. And and the reason why I wouldn't do a salvation call now is because if you're not saved and you're hearing this in this context for the first time, you can't count the cost in an emotional moment and make a real decision. That's why I want you to come back. That's why Christianity happens in community. That's why I don't know when I got saved. People always say, when did you get saved? I'm like, well, you know, 
Pastor Jim made a thing, and, and I raised up my hand. And then somebody came and they behind me, and I heard them praying, and they took me into a little room, and they said, oh, brother, this is wonderful. You know, would you like us to pray with you about it? I'm like, I don't know anything. I, I've never prayed. I don't know anything. Some people come up to me, oh, I, you know, I hear you, you made a great decision. I'm like, what was that? I was all emotional. I raised my hand. All these people, they look so happy. I don't have what they have. I'll take it, please. Did I decide to die in that moment? I didn't. Matter of fact, for a long time, I was taught God wants to bless you. I'm like, I love it. I want to be blessed. This is what I think a blessing is. Give me some of that, God. Not death. Not putting my flesh down. All my desires aside if they conflict with his desires. I don't know when I got saved. I honestly have probably a dozen times have prayed the prayer, Lord, I just want you to know that I understand now at least as much as I understand now, and I commit to you that I'm a dead man. Even though I don't act like it all the time, it's my desire to be... I mean, a dozen times I've, I've, I've gotten saved. Not because I got unsaved, because I had a greater revelation of, whoa, this is what you're calling me to. So I'm not going to ask anybody, anybody to say, oh, I'm ready to make that decision, because you've got to count the cost. He's calling you to be dead. Are you ready to be dead? Are you at least ready to walk with him and allow him to help you to die? Because that's the terms of the covenant that he offers to us. And for that, we get to someday, well, first we get to be indwelt by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Then our life has new meaning in that we become the body of Jesus. He uses us to speak his words and to display his love and to feel his pain so that we'll cry out to him on behalf of somebody else. We can have empathy we couldn't even imagine before. And after we've served him... As dead people, under his purposes, we get to go and have a reward that's beyond any treasure that we can store for ourselves here on earth. That's the call. Come back and challenge the challenge me in the word. If you're like, come on, you don't understand grace, I'm saying, good, let's look at the book and see. Because I don't want anybody to stand before the Lord and be like, oh, baby, I can't wait. Heaven's going to be so awesome. And find out they don't get to go. And guess what? At that moment... There is no opportunity for repentance. You can't say, okay, hang on a minute. Let me just run back the last five minutes of my life because I guess I didn't understand it well. You're done at that point. Game over. Okay. We're going to sing the happy song at the end of service today. You you really got to know, it is a happy message. It is a happy, happy, glorious message. But there's no sense in sugarcoating it and making it not a real message, not a true gospel message. Everybody's happy with, I believe in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. It's part of the covenant. Okay, so I started off, there's three categories of people likely here today. Those that are saved. Today, if, if, if you're one of those people that's saved, then maybe you use this thing a, as a way to recommit yourself unto the covenant. Lord, those things in my life that I'm holding on to that you say need to die, help me to humble myself before you and take those things from me that aren't like Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And maybe if you're not saved and you've heard the truth, now you can make an informed decision. You don't have to choose to die. You really don't. I really wouldn't say the alternative is excellent, but God always gives us choice. In the garden, they had choice. Israel had choice. In the covenant with Christ of grace, we have choice. And, and if maybe, just maybe, you're a person who thought you were saved, you didn't understand the depth of what you're called to, to receive the gift of God in Christ Jesus, 
Now you can make an informed decision. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let me just pray a minute, and then somebody wants to bring the kids in, and then we'll, um, we'll sing a song. The, actually, kids will sing a song. The kids will worship with us. Thank you, Margie. Let's just pray. Father God, Jesus, you taught us that your, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So as, as much as I make a big deal about dying, I don't have to die without your help. I don't have to die without grace. I don't have to die without power. I have to die, and you can show me, even in this life, why death is better than flesh. I pray, Lord, that every word that I've spoken is true. If there's any word that I've spoken that may be untrue, that you just take it from anyone's remembrance. I pray that each and every one of us will be truly the light of the world, that the kingdom will be manifest. The the Bible says that, that the kingdom is not a kingdom of words, but of power, and that the power of your kingdom will manifest in your church so that you will be glorified to this whole world and people will come to Jesus. We praise you on this day that you were resurrected, Lord.